welcome to the Cup of Tea podcast. I'm Mike Ewan. And I'm Catherine Lilly. And we both work in the Teaching Excellence Academy at the University of Hull, where our roles are to develop, celebrate and promote HE level teaching. This podcast is designed to explore and share some of the fantastic teaching practices here at the university by showcasing work of some of our colleagues, what they do, how and why they do it, and what the impact has been. In this week's episode, we're joined by Lee Fallon from the School of Education to talk about his PhD research around learning spaces and also on his recent transition from professional services to academia. So without further ado, pour yourself a cup of tea and enjoy the show. Welcome, Lee. Thanks for coming along. I'll get you to introduce yourself shortly. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming for a cup of tea with us. Uh, we've, we've procured you a oat milk latte, I hope. Is that right? Yeah. So is that kind of your go-to? Is, that, is this your, your drink of choice? It is my go-to. Um, oat milk is, is my go-to at the moment. I think uh, I had a colleague join our team and she called milk baby cow juice and it's just never <laughs> been quite as appetising since. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm just taking a sip of my tea here thinking, oh, no, what have I done? Baby so, cow juice baby cow tea. Juice. Yeah. Oh, oh Lee, you've... you've, you've You've destroyed the milk industry just through this podcast recording, I think. There, but yeah. So, do you want to kind of introduce yourself and 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 uh, see where you're in the university you're coming from? Yeah. So, um, I'm Lee Fallon, and I am a lecturer in education studies, which is a new thing for me. Um, I've joined the School of Education at the beginning of October slash September, um, which is when this has been recorded. I'm in kind of a transition phase, moving from the library where I work as a learning developer um, into my first lecturer role. And it really is quite a transition. I've got half my stuff in the old office, half my stuff in the new office. Um, is that half your brain in the old office, half your brain in the new office? Is that... <laughs> about that, about that. I've, I've, got, I've got both the library and the face lanyard on yeah. to, to reflect that. And um, yeah, it's the joy of an internal move, but also a recognition that a more blended approach would suit the library and the school better. So um, uh, okay. it's been great because it means I can now get my head around what I'm going to be teaching rather than just yeah. finding myself delivering lectures on, on the first day. Mm. Yeah. You get a lot of emails from people saying, before you leave, can you just <laughs> yeah. get a hold of those emails? Before you start, can you just... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think I, I'm going to aim to have like a cut-off period. I think the, the idea of it being a transition would be that there'd be a blurry month either side and then... Because mm. it can't go on forever. And yeah. I think that's the one piece of advice other people have given me who've made that same kind of move. Um, find a time to, to cut it off. Yeah, start saying no to people who still think you're in the old job and yeah, you know, that's a, that's a very good place. Yeah, is, is, has it been a long time coming, you think, this, this move from a sort of PSS background to an academic background is something you wanted or is it, was it an opportunity arose? I, yeah, I, I don't think I saw this coming. Yeah. Um, I loved being a learning developer yeah. and I loved the library. And I think one of the big things at our university, we've recruited very well internationally. And over the last year, we've been doing an awful lot of support for those international students. For that very reason, there was new posts coming up in the School of Education, recognising that we they, they needed more staff to support the MA programme. And I just really like the idea of, of doing fewer things in more detail and more depth, because at the moment, I feel yeah. like I'm spinning so many plates. Mm. 
I want to spin fewer plates. I want to... Spin them really fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really well. <laughs> I, I want to focus on a, a smaller number of things and do that very, very well. Yeah. And it seemed like a really good opportunity for me to do that. I guess in some ways it felt like a natural progression because I did the doctorate. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, which was great. Yeah. And I'm working on the PCAP at the yeah. moment, uh, which is awesome as well. I had no idea what to expect with the PCAP, to okay. be honest, because... I feel a little bit like grandfather PCAP because most of the other people on that programme are new to teaching in higher education. So there's a real variety of experience in there, but a lot of people are new academics or very early career academics. But I've learned so much. I just went in with a really open mind and thought, you know, this feels like a right of progression in academia to go through some kind of teaching qualification. Mm. So I've really enjoyed it. And, and you went into PCAP before even thinking about moving in to academia. Yeah. And so I suppose, is, is that something you'd recommend for other PSS staff to consider, you think, in oh, it'd be brilliant. that understanding of... And it's a conversation you can have at interview as well. So there was a couple of questions, actually, where it talked about teaching experience, uh, programme design experience, right. and I was able to say, actually, having just gone through PCAP, yeah. mm -hmm. I've gone right the way through the very latest approach to curriculum design at the University of Hull. Yeah. I understand yeah. about our competence-based approach. Yeah. I understand about why we're trying to make our programmes this way, and I think, I think that worked really well. It's enough to get me through the door. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we always say it was just PCAP. You know, you've got some other stuff in your, in your thing which we'll talk about. But. I think the, the big thing that PCAP brought, the, the big reason why I would recommend it to people, I think I didn't learn an awful lot of new stuff when you look at it topic by topic. But what PCAP let me see was how it all joined together. Oh, okay. And that was invaluable. Yeah. You know, I worked in the student union and I did stuff with quality. I, I wrote a code of practice in my role there. In the library, I used data from Humid. Yeah. In my teaching, I used these aspects of curriculum design. But actually being able to see how it all fit together for our programmes was brilliant. It's good. It's becoming an advert for PCAP. It is. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of kind of the transition of your sort of identity as well, obviously you were learning developer before and really great reputation across the sector as being a learning developer. Do you think in your mind yet you've kind of shifted into being an academic and what does that kind of mean for you? It's, it was quite a thing to get my head around because being a learning developer was a real proud identity. Mm. I'm not sure they're mutually exclusive. Mm. Being a learning developer brings an understanding of how students learn. But it also brings an awareness of the hidden curriculum and all of the stuff that we just assume students know, but we don't teach them. So I think that will really help me in my role in understanding that kind of support that students need and, and how we pave over some aspects of that hidden curriculum to stop students falling into them. Mm. But also I'm on a teaching and scholarship contract and I've got scholarship opportunities and I very much intend to continue scholarship linked to learning development and there's a few areas of scholarly activity that I hope to continue in my new role that will support learning development while also supporting Ed Studies and my career. So that's it and I suppose especially moving into the school that you are doing, is the two go hand in hand don't they? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah definitely. And hopefully also with our TA hat on, the three areas could work very closely together. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Having that time to write and to research and think as part yeah. of your role must be a real 
bonus because I know it's something we've talked about before that we kind of want to do it and we yeah. try and do bits of it but it's not part of what's expected as a as a PSS so it must be that must be something you're looking forward to definitely and um, I mean that one of some of the very early conversations I've had with the head of school have been about workload allocation how time's going to be split up and there's been a very pragmatic approach to that and I think that will give us a lot of opportunity to not only do some excellent teaching and deliver some excellent student experiences but also ensure we're keeping on top of that scholarship and you know keeping ourselves up to date with what's going on in our field and, and figuring things out and conducting some new research as well. Amazing. How is this linked in? One of the reasons we actually come along today was to talk about the research you did as part of your doctorate and, how you, and what you've continued. And do you see the two kind of overlapping? If you can say a bit more about your research, but yeah, I mean, I, I did my undergraduate in geography. You can yeah. you yeah. can manipulate geography to touch to whatever you wanted to. Do. It's, <laughs> it's a brilliant discipline, particularly human geography. It's about how we experience our planet, and you can interpret that on so many different scales. Mm -hmm. I was always really interested in, in how people experience urban environments and cities, and the university is but another yeah. urban environment, and how people navigate through it, how they feel like they belong. Or don't belong, how they feel excluded, how they feel safe or not safe, I think are really important things for higher education to look at. And the physical estate is often something we don't look at enough. I think that's going to change dramatically with energy bills. Because by the time this is released, maybe the government will have, you know, stumped up the cash and sorted all of the problems. I think we'll see the physical estate come into a much bigger focus over that. But it, of course, it's just much more than electricity and gas bills. It's a big part of our students' lives. It's how they turn those little student apartment and rooms into homes somewhere that they feel that they belong while they're here at university is how we build teaching spaces that make them feel comfortable that have the affordances they need whether that's really good wi-fi close toilet yeah. not too far away from a cafe the ability to bring drinks in yeah. comfortable seating plenty of space collaborative opportunities access to technology it goes on and on and on and on and i think that's really important it's something we lost in the pandemic to some extent yeah. i said so many students you go to a lecture and you go in there's there's a desk and you put something on it and you you write you don't have that very subtle message when you're sat on your bed watching a video mm. on panopto there isn't that desk there there's no expectation you do those lecture notes and you can very easily fall into thinking you're watching a movie or a yeah. series on netflix and not actually engaging with the learning so the environment and space has such an incredible influence on everything that learners do and everything that academics do both in their own homes and the campus as well it's important to acknowledge that the digital and how people engage with digital is an aspect of that i think that sense of kind of community and belonging and particularly for commuter students maybe some master students phd students that are just coming on campus for their academic work they're not living in the halls of residence it becomes quite an emotive thing as well they want a space to land they want a space that they can call their own that that's where they sit and they work and they speak to other people and they feel part of the learning community and i think people can quite often get isolated if they haven't got those opportunities to come together our commute students are often a forgotten voice mm -hmm. in some metrics are called immobile and it's it's really interesting because 
they're incredibly mobile mm. just because they've not moved to the university to come and study they could be driving 30 40 50 yeah. miles a day they could be taking an hour or two on a train i was very fortunate to i was very inspired by dr kirsty finn uh, she actually became one of my external examiners for my thesis she's done a lot of research around it meeting commuter students at their home and commuting with them and interviewing mm. them through that com- commute right. mm. to, to see what that experience is like everydayness for that student that quite often a lot of academics don't realise or senior managers just never perceive. Even though they're often making similar journeys. Yes, yeah. yeah. We see it with staff as well when you know people have to move perhaps from an individual office to a shared space and all of the emotions that are around that yeah. and we really do kind of have that sense of ownership over our working space and we want things to be the right lighting, the right heating, the noise levels and everything. It, it does impact on your ability to concentrate, to learn, to interact with people so it's hugely important. I think that's a, a scary issue for many people, particularly if you're neuro- neurodiverse, there's different approaches to environment and control around that. Office can be a very emotive subject for some people and it feels like it's very much rock and a hard place. And, and this is an issue across the entire sector. You've got an immensely expensive estate. It costs money to build, to maintain, to heat, to light, to provision. And an individual office is a extreme luxury and an extreme mm. expense. Mm. And Space managers and facilities managers, it's a hard job. On the flip side, you've got people, human beings, your students, your individual staff. And it's it's hard to unpick this because sometimes it can be a change that's scary for them. But sometimes there are real barriers from an inclusivity perspective on making their spaces work. They can work. It's just, it's going to take dialogue and experimentation time it's really complicated because the issue can be generational working practices are changing mm. dramatically a 20 year old is probably quite happy to be plugged into a laptop with some noise cancelling earphones on which is just miles away from the experience of some of our more seasoned staff uh, yeah i think it's gonna be a very difficult issue to address particularly when you're looking at the energy crisis as well you know open plan offices are more efficient mm. They afford collaboration, you get that energy and that buzz. There's also some elements of safety as opposed to individual offices. Yeah. Affordances in practice, I guess. It's interesting that we've, so we've got a number of podcasts now, and there's a couple of themes that come out of it, and, well, for me anyway. And it's always comes back to conversations mm-hmm. and, and to some degree flexibility, I suppose, and, and how you can offer ranges of spaces to people so they can feel comfortable and you put it put the emphasis on on, on them and then you know forcing them into a particular thing but it all stems from the as you said the conversation when designing space when designing anything around their experience <coughs> with us got to sort of talk about stuff obviously. and listen i think yeah i think that's important we always talk about talking and conversation but listening is just just as important and i won't give you any of the context yeah i had a meeting a couple of months ago with somebody and pitched as an open conversation yeah, it's very, very well aware by the end of it that they're like, this is the journey we're going down. Okay. And I'm going to try and lead you to say things that align to this. And when you say things that don't align to this, I will ignore you <laughs> or I'll move things on. Yeah. So I think listening fits in with that important. Definitely. Are there any aspects of your research which you can see will naturally fit in with your teaching approach? That's a really good question. Yeah, that's what we're here for. I mean, I would, I'd like to think I will bring an appreciation of space to my students yeah. as an opportunity, something they can look at, something they can research. And it intersects with a lot of things we deal with um, in education, like community mm. and learning. I mean, mm. we learn in spaces. 
how we provision and create new schools, new classrooms, new lecture theatres, new nurseries, the affordances and the objects and things that we pre uh, we provide uh, educators and learners with. So there's a lot of opportunities for me there. I think it's going to be very interesting for me to see what it's like as a lecturer because for me, in my current teaching, it's very workshop or single lecture based. Yeah. So it's very, there's lots of transition. You know, I'm in different rooms, different buildings, different disciplines, different programs continually all of the time. And it's going to be really interesting knowing that I'm going to be leading seminars and I'll be in the same space with the same people yeah. for a few weeks in a row. It's probably the thing that I'm looking forward to the most about the job in that I'll get to learn names. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I only meet people for an hour or two at the moment and then that's it. It's gone. It's the next thing. Yeah, and that flip of the relationship of they'll probably remember you. You know, you, you could run five workshops in a day. If you bump into them later in the arts cafe, they say, oh, Leah, lovely session. And you're like, which session was that? Whereas now you have the affordance to yeah, build that relationship in the community. That, that actually happened to me once. I remember <laughs> I was in Starbucks in the city centre and a student ran up to me and they were like, Leah, I'm so pleased I've seen you. You've been so helpful. Thank you. You're one of the reasons I've got my degree. And they were literally wearing their gown and cap. Yeah, yeah. And like, it's a bit weird, but can, can I introduce my parents to you? Uh-huh. And they brought their parents over, like, this is Lee, who's so helpful in my study. And I just felt so guilty because I just yeah. could not place this student. Yeah. And it was probably, you know, somebody in, in a couple of workshops and a couple of appointments, but you see thousands of students yeah. over the year when you're dancing between disciplines like we do at the moment. I'm really looking forward to that narrowing a little bit. Talking about how obviously space impacts on the ability to learn and to work and to concentrate and what we find as well in some of our workshops when working with the academics is the impact that it has on you as a teacher as well and how you know you can be allocated a room on the timetable and it just doesn't work for the approach that you want to take or the activities that you want to run and how that can really impact on your ability to teach as well as your students' ability to learn. So is that something that you looked at as part of your doctorate or is that something that you're interested in in, in your new role? I'm very interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there for the university and, and some opportunities for investment. I think we've got some really good spaces like it will be Force Lecture in 14, yeah, the yeah. innovative learning space. There's one of the Larkin. Yeah, there's a couple of Larkin, yeah. Particularly the one with the laptops and the desk and the computer sockets. And we need more of that. My thesis itself focused on the experience of the Brimogen's library. I really wanted to problematise the idea of library. Like if you Google library and you go to images, you just get really, really old buildings with really, really old books in them on really, really old shelves. Usually with really, really old wizard librarians with Cardigans glasses and, and card yeah. Beige. Everything <laughs> everything everyone who works in the Brimwell Jones hates. And the Brimwell Jones Library is like a juxtaposition of yeah. that. On open days we get students come in and say, Where's the library? And it's like mm-hmm. you're in it. But where are the books? Mm-hmm. It's like there's more to libraries than just books. So I really wanted to explore that and, and see what was the library to people. And it ended up being, yes, about you know learning, research, productivity, but it was about people, support and connection and belonging, mm-hmm. uh, comfort. Sometimes it was a place to be with people, but sometimes it was a place to be away from people. Yeah. The weirdest thing about a library, it can be that space where you get together as a group of five people and you work together. But on the exact same floor, it can also be the place where you sit amongst a hundred other people, but you're in your own little bubble by yourself doing your work. And 
I'm really biased, but I think my research <laughs> illustrated that beautifully. I, I had my participants uh, build their responses to my questions with Lego, and I think that was a key aspect of the success of the thesis because I was looking at space from a very heavy philosophical perspective. Um, Henri Lefebvre's conceptualization of space, and he argues there's three dimensions to space. You've got a concrete, measurable bit of space. You can get a ruler out. You can measure it. You can cost yeah. it. It's the kind of things that the architects and the planners and the people with power draw, build and conceive. You've then got this perceived space where things go on. There's flows of uh, resources, people, movement. And then sitting between them, you've got the lived space where actual things happen. And sometimes yeah. they conflict with each other. So perfect example, our group study rooms in the library mm. were designed for group study, mm. for people to get together with books and laptops and study, not for people to rehearse with a band. We have had to tear the band out of that group. They're not soundproof. Mm. That's a lovely example of you know use contesting purpose. Mm. But that's like a really heavy thing to get your head around when you're into people and holding focus groups space is complicated yeah but lego let me kind of ditch all of that boring philosophy and focus on the experience and the meaning and then get people to talk through their models and what they meant to them and then it was me back in my study with all of those video recordings and photographs and transcriptions that could then make sense of that and relate it back to theory um, and i think that worked really really well it would have been very difficult i think to talk about space without some kind of artifact whether it was photographs yeah or you know something more experiential where people walk around the space or in this case lego and it's an excuse to buy more lego <laughs> <laughs> you don't need any excuse to buy more lego i'm quite guilty of using some of those group learning rooms for myself to sit and do my own study from phd because even though i've got a, a desk and an office that i could use it's something about i'm in the library i'm studying it's a different mindset i'm not going to check yeah. my emails i'm here to do this one activity and i think there's that sometimes that you pin an identity onto a space as well. The space is from working, social space. I don't do it if, during the heavy turn time when people actually need it for legitimate group learning, but yeah. I, have, I think and I'm not the only one that's done that as well. Yeah. It's a really interesting thing for the library to explore though. Why should staff feel like that? Yeah. Like, I'm naughty, I'm using the library. I mean, <laughs> when has it ever been just a student space? And, and actually, I'd like to see more academics coming into the building and using those spaces and being seen to be reading and studying yeah. and yeah. writing in those yeah. spaces. I think the group learning rooms is always a contentious issue because they're in high demand during uh, trimester, but it would be lovely to see more academics using those public spaces and actually you know, mimicking the behaviours we're expecting from our students going in reading, engaging, studying, collaborating. So, yeah. so you'll have to do it then? Yes. You'll have to live you'll have to live <laughs> this. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be a bit worried if I go into the library they'll get me to do exactly. something. Exactly. That's my fear. Is there anything you could think if you were to offer advice to others about I suppose like taking things from your research or or ideas you're starting to formulate about your teaching. In the use of space I suppose specifically, have you got any kind of practical things that staff could think about when they're planning their teaching? I think challenge the environment you're in. Okay. You know, a lot of the time people walk into a lecture theatre and they're a bit like, well, I can't do the debate now. And right. you know, that kind of defeatism over space. Now, I'm not saying you should take a band into the library yeah. and study rooms, yeah, yeah. but you can contest those space uses. So I was doing a, we had a day-long critical thinking session with our new PGC students who just started this week. And I had Wilberforce Lecture Theatre 2 for the full day. And nowhere near enough students to, to fill in. But it afforded some great opportunities for group discussion. Spent the entire day prepping them for a debate. 
So I got someone from the library to come in and show them searching. I then set up a reading activity. They went off and did that with their tutors. They were then trusted for two hours to go off, do some more searching, find an article and read that. Come back to the session. I then delivered a traditional kind of lecture on critical thinking. And we moved into a class discussion. Mm. So I designated the front of the lecture theatre one side of the debate, the back side of the lecture theatre to the other, and got them to go physically stand where they were on this issue. And we were pretty much shouting at each other up and down <laughs> the Wilberforce lecture theatre. And it worked really, really well. Obviously you've got to be aware of the students that you've, you've got in the room. Um, all of my students have no mobility requirements, so they're able to do that. I did have one student who had a hearing impairment, but it was just making sure that you could hear yeah. and people communicating clearly. It worked really, really well. And it had a bit of energy and movement to it. Um, I, you know, I said if people are persuading you on why they're stood there on that issue, you can go join them. Yeah. So there's a little bit I'll of movement halfway. up and down. Spend in the air. And that was particularly fascinating because we debated hard versus soft skills. Right. And it was one of the students realised actually there's a bit of a generational split here. You know, a lot okay. of the young younger students were, you know, recognising the hard skills. And, and qualifications. I'm, I'm not surprised, you know, they've they've just been hammered GCSEs, GCSEs, yeah, A-levels, yeah, A-levels, yeah. degree, degree, and now they've come to do another hard, you know, postgraduate certificate in education. Whereas a lot of the older students, not by age, but just by experience and particularly from work, were able to recognise those softer skills and how they were actually much more beneficial in the workplace because they'd had that experience, and that was really interesting. I don't think we would have noticed that if we were all sat down, you know, just listening to me lecture on. So challenge those spaces and communicate back, you know. Those other spaces are in high demand, but see what timetabling can do. I can only hope that that will provide more data for the university to realise this is the direction that we need to go in. But the universities are aware of that. They've been doing a lot of work on... Uh, how to get our estate in the best possible condition for what we need to do. You said about that day, is that a chunk of it was given over back to the student to choose their place, right? You go and do this bit of work, but do it wherever you feel comfortable. So like we trust you to go away for two hours and sit in McDonald's and do it, sit in the library and do it, sit wherever you want and do it. But I did bump into a couple of groups sat in the library and it was like a bonus point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The library is the place you to You get the pat on the back, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they did it, you know, they'd gone off and taken yeah. that, that seriously. Um, I mean, they were level seven students. I might not do that with a, a new bunch of level four students, but there's no reason why we couldn't be doing that kind of thing by the, the end of, of a term, you know, preparing students to that responsibility on. Promote that kind of independent learning. Absolutely. Yeah, just like you say, especially with a long session, it kind of breaks up the, the energy, the atmosphere, it kind of creates a different environment. You can all remember at school, one teacher would say, work outside today because yeah. it's a nice day and it was just so exciting so yeah, yeah just yeah. changing the environment can change the atmosphere the energy in the room yeah I, I mean one thing i'm most excited to try if i get the opportunity in this new job job's not fair is it in the new career pathway i attended yes my calling i attended a conference association for learning development in higher education and the session that struck me the most was on walking supervision mm. as part of the actual workshop they got us to pair up and have a walk around northampton's campus 
and it just really struck me as a, a real potential tool that we could yeah. use for, for research supervision. It just gave the conversation a little bit more pace and energy, I think, mm. than if we'd been sat around. And I really, really enjoyed that. A lot of institutions started doing those things through COVID to facilitate contact and still maintain social distancing. But I think there's still a lot of opportunity beyond that. And uh, I also had the term walk shop used as well Lovely. for when you've got a small group Lovely. of yeah. students. Mm. Uh, and we've got a beautiful campus, yeah. so we've got a lot of outdoor spaces that we could use. So I wanted to try that. And again, it's using space in different ways. Can remove that sort of sense of hierarchy as well if you're a student yeah. that you're the expert, you're a professor, I, you know, I'm in your office, but actually, no, let's walk together as equals around campus and it just breaks down some of those barriers as well. Absolutely. And I think as well, it's that feeling of activity. So, like, again, bringing back the Lego idea that you had and interested in how you can use Lego within your research but then how the broader thought could be around something like that around your design so your curriculum design your learning design but that feeling of doing something of being active whether it's messing about with your hands and some bricks or being out and about in the fresh mm. air really you know a lot of people find that invigorating I definitely I've just been supporting a university project for reimagining the future mm. of the University of Hull and that's all been based on human-centered design heavily influenced by the design council's double diamond right. which i will remember discover define design deliver Brilliant. i think for some people it was quite revolutionary but there, there's just so much energy and pace in those mm. sessions we use the top floor observatory of the Bruno Jones library which I mean, must be able to fit about 100 people, yeah. in excess of 100 people up there. But actually having such a big space with only you know, 30, 40 participants meant we could have zones and movement and we were doing stuff all of the time. And it was quite pacey. And I think it's probably fair to say that worked for about 90% of people. I want to revisit that process a little bit for some people who might be neurodiverse or might have different mobility needs. They might have found it a little bit too pacey. So I think there's maybe some tweaks needed to it. But it was really nice to be able to zone a space and move off and do different things and get people to draw, build, glue, yeah. stick. There was lots of uh, kind of like process mapping and just to stop some of the slow, you know, of making a perfect box or on a computer, just yeah. having those little things yeah. ready for people to glue down. I think that worked really, really well. Mm -hmm. And it gave people the power to dream. I'd really, really like to see that in curriculum design. Yeah. I love forget, ABC. Forget the systems, forget the... Yeah, like take that step back. I think quite often we jump into the defining a problem, designing solutions and delivering it, and we forget that discover phase. And what higher education really needs to do to be competitive and cutting edge and innovative, uh, take a step back and look at schools, yeah. colleges, publishers, commercial providers, apprenticeships, MOOC providers, and look at what they're doing, and look at the experiences that they're delivering, and think, what can we knit? In the same way that when we were looking at physical space, we were looking at what does Netflix do? What does this university do? How does Monzo onboard people as a new banking customer? Yeah. I think it's fair to say it's infinitely easier to sign up and get a bank account than it is to register at university. So what can we learn from that, yeah. that journey? I think there's a lot that we can borrow from the industry. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks very much for coming along today, Lee, and sharing all that. That's brilliant. And all the best with the year ahead. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure you'll be brilliant.